Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Sahra Birbani, der er en 24-årig forretningsejer, aktivist, nyhedsbrevskribent og meget mere fra Houston, Texas. Da Birbani, hun var temmelig ung, der sank hun ned i det, som hun selv kalder for nihilismens kviksand. Hun var temmelig optaget af socialt arbejde og hjalp folk, der lige var flyttet til Houston, Texas, med at finde hjem og med at etablere sig og med at skabe et liv for deres familie og med at understøtte dem, når de havde mistet deres arbejde. Men Birbani oplevede, at arbejdet indimellem kunne være fuldstændig meningsløst, fordi hun så, hvordan den ene orkan efter den anden ramte Houston. Hun så, hvordan den ene oversvømmelse efter den anden ramte Houston. Og folk, der lige havde fået sig etableret, de fik smadret deres hjem. De blev slået tilbage fra start. Og folk, der lige havde fået købt sig et hus, måtte pludselig rykke ud på gaden igen. Så alt det sociale arbejde, hun lavede, blev på en eller anden måde annulleret af effekterne af klimaforandringerne, som var så voldsom, at hun mistede enhver tro på, at man kunne gøre noget ved det. Men så begyndte hun at lave forskellige ting. Hun besluttede sig for, at det var de forkerte i USA, der var optimistiske, og de forkerte, der var pessimistiske. Det var alle de forretningsledere, som ikke rigtig gør noget ved det, bare taler om det grønne, der fremstod meget optimistiske. Og det var alle de unge aktivister, der var stærkt pessimistiske. Og til de unge aktivister har hun skrevet en bog, som hedder Climate Optimism. Climate wins and creating systemic change around the world. Hun udgiver hver uge et nyhedsbrev, som udelukkende rummer positive klimanyheder fra hele verden. Hun har lavet sit eget tøjfirma, som har oprettet en hjemmeside, hvor folk de kan udveksle genbrugstøj i hele Texas. Det gjorde hun, fordi hun fandt ud af, at det var utrolig dyrt at købe vintage genbrugstøj. Det var utrolig dyrt at leve bæredygtigt og lade være med at købe nyt tøj hele tiden. Og så besluttede hun sig for at skabe sin egen cirkulation. Hun har startet sin egen studenterbevægelse på Vanderbilt University, hvor hun mobiliserede studerende fra de fem største universiteter til at kræve af deres ledelser, at de fjernede alle universitetsinvesteringer i fossile industrier. Sahra Birbani er offensiv på en hel masse forskellige fronter. Hun er kun 24 år gammel, og når man taler med hende, så smitter optimismen, og man fornemmer, hvor meget der egentlig også er gang i på klimafronten i øjeblikket. Her følger min samtale med Sahra. Let's get right to it. Well, you know, here in Denmark, there was a huge enthusiasm about the climate movement in 2019 after the Fridays for Future. And now it's like, okay, there are no climate denialists back and still nothing is happening. So there's a kind of activism fatigue among the activists. They don't know what the what is the next move. And then we have this feeling that even though we make it here, we look at America and culturally we're all Americans. We, we appreciate America. We think, well, you have such a crazy energy consumption and even though the inflation reduction act is a great thing a lot of things that are done are great things it's just still still seems impossible so to speak to a young climate optimist from america is such a privilege <laughs> well thank you I, i i feel like and i try and communicate this a lot in my work in my book but it is a privilege to be a climate optimist especially one you know from 
a Western country, but I think understanding like the privilege I have as someone from America, um, writing and, and advocating for a topic that is really currently affecting the most marginalized groups, specifically in the global South, is, is really important because it helps me ground my work and also understanding reality. Like what I'm doing is important. Um, what other people are doing is so important for helping the people that are most vulnerable to, to this crisis. So I, I think acknowledging my privilege too is, is really important. So I was in Houston many years ago. We covered one of the election, I think it was 2012. And my family, we were in Texas for a month. And we wow. went to Houston a, a couple of times. And I was I was very impressed by by Houston. The, the, it's a very large city, a lot of things happening. But I also, it was one of the places where I felt, well, this is a place that's actually influenced by climate change. Mm. This is, you actually have... Uh, and that is 10, 10 years ago. You actually have floods here. You actually yeah. have, and you must have experienced that as a child growing up in 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 in, in Houston. How, how did you experience climate change growing up? I think it honestly wasn't until uh, 2017 when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston. I don't think I was really cognizant of the effects of a changing planet until then. Um, but it was especially evident kind of how a warming planet was amplifying all social inequities when Hurricane Harvey touched down in, in Houston. Um, at the time, I was working at a social services agency, so we provided financial uh, assistance to people who, uh, to people in our community who are without work and um, were really having a hard time, and seeing those people get pushed down even further because of the flood and and the lack of funding was was really what opened my eyes, I think, to climate justice specifically. So not only the science behind climate change, but how it affects people differently um, and amplifies social inequities. So for you, climate activism was always also about climate justice. It was linked linked to this. Absolutely. Yeah, because in, honestly, throughout high school and when I was younger, I was like very passionate about just more social issues. Um, and so it wasn't until Harvey where I really saw the intersection of climate change and these social issues and realized like, if I'm really passionate about these social issues, I have to be really passionate about climate change. You know, there's, there's an interesting opening to your book where you state who this book is for. And I especially like the part who it's not for, but, <laughs> but, but who is for. And you say one of the persons that the book is written for is the 17 year old Jew impassioned to save the planet, yet overwhelmed on how to do it. What was your situation regarding, who's the 17 year old that you're writing this book for? Yeah, that's a great question. Great questions you're asking. Um, uh, the 17 year old was really shocked because at that time, again, Hurricane Harvey had touched down. I was trying to help people at this agency who recently moved to Houston and now were out of work. Um, one woman had a double miscarriage because of the mold growing in her home and she was already low income. Um, there was just so many heartbreaking situations. And I, you know, I just was so overwhelmed. Um, thank, thankfully, my family was not impacted by the flood, but we were housing another family for about a month and a half because their house was decimated. So it was just really like very much confronted by 
this is what's going on. This is the privileges that I have. What can I, what can I do? Um, and that was kind of that headspace I was in for a while and I didn't know how to act. Um, and it took me a while to, to learn because there's a lot of dialogue on individual changes. Um, but I think I quickly understood that those changes are not going to actually stop these natural disasters from intensifying. Um, they're great to, to implement They're You know, it's wonderful to be vegan. I had been vegan for a year prior, but I realized really with hurricane Harvey that like, we need massive changes and that's only going to happen when we, when we work to, to change systematic, to, to change systems really. So, and after that, you came to Vanderbilt University and you started environmental sociology? Yep, correct. Environmental sociology and earth science. And you, you were part of a large campaign at Vanderbilt. Can you tell us about this campaign? Yeah, it was probably the, the activity that like most is, is most charged up my, my activism and it was just amazing. So um, it's called the Fossil Free Five. Basically, there is this law that nonprofits, uh, university nonprofits in the states, most have have signed on to. Um, it's called UPMIFA, University Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act. Um, it basically asserts that a university needs to align their investments with their mission statement as as a nonprofit. And so my school, we had a small coalition of kind of, it was a very uh, guerrilla coalition. Our administration hated us uh, that filed a legal complaint against the university with our state attorney general, uh, basically accusing the university of shirking its responsibility under this act. Um, then I, you know, there was this, nonprofit that was helping us write this complaint. And so as I was talking to them, I um, asked about other universities doing this and they told me. And so then I started this coalition of five schools. So it was um, MIT, Princeton, Vanderbilt, Yale, and Stanford, I believe. I, I always forget one. It's Stanford. Yeah. Um, and so we were all filing these complaints and we we made sure we all had the same filing dates. And so we got a lot of press coverage from that. Um, obviously, again, speaking to the privilege component, we all had immense privilege coming from like these big name schools, but trying to leverage that in order to draw attention to what our universities were doing. Um, and so that was just so invigorating because it was truly like a grassroots movement. We were really uh, inspired by Harvard's divestment campaign and thankful that they helped give us mentorship of how they exactly got to divestment. Um, and so that was in, I think, 2020 to 2021, where that really took off. There's a transition that you describe, describe in the book from uh, sinking into the quicksand of nihilism and then to, to, to climate optimism. Is that where you felt part of a larger movement that could make structural change and, and that you went from... The, I know we're all in this climate nihilism at times. You know, you can't escape it without escaping reality. But was that when 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 you came in, into contact with climate optimism? Yeah, I would say before I had been like cultivating these positive climate news stories. So in that sense, I was like already opening the door to 
climate optimism because I was receiving good news. And, and that's why one of the chapters really covers divestment because much of that news was on institutional divestment. Like, you know, all of these major foundations and universities following Harvard's divestment that decided to follow suit. Um, but yes, to your question, I think actually getting involved in it, like on the ground, even though we weren't successful, um, was a huge inflection point because just like the energy of everyone involved, we were really working to make a change we believed could actually happen. And I think, although I'm a huge advocate for, you know, reading positive news stories, there is no substitution for actually being involved in, in a grassroots movement. And, and the activism and the optimism that's in the title of the book, you know, uh, sometimes here, I feel that people are too optimistic. Like our leader is saying, well, we have this green transition going, we have these technolo technological innovations and we have finance-driven projects. And so I, at times I feel there's too much optimism on a leadership level and too much nihilism on the activist level. And I'm always a little cautious myself about preaching optimism because I'm afraid that it will end up in the wrong hands. How do you see this balance? Yeah, that's a great point. And I, and I too agree that there's too much nihilism on, there's too much nihilism on the advocacy realm and too much optimism on the kind of bureaucratic and corporate level. Um, and I think that's why the disclaimer <laughs> to the chagrin of my publishers about who the book is for and not for was really important. And I hope, I hope people close the book, honestly, if they like, you know, and, and don't buy it, if they resonate with, with the titles of who it's not for, because um, it's too, it's, it's such an easy excuse. And as the term climate optimism has become more embedded into our vernacular, you see more and more corporations and, uh, you know, bureaucrats kind of throwing it around. But the the book's point is really to provide an entryway of what I have identified and, and called the most promising systemic solutions to the systemic crisis. So if you're in an individual who doesn't know how to make a difference other than swapping out, you know, plastic for reusables and meat for plants, this gives you like, you can get involved in rights of nature legislation without even having to take, you know, a government to court, but there are movements that are making huge traction that you can get involved in. Um, you can get involved in bipartisan youth coalition building without having to start your own thing. There's so much going on there. So just providing entryways for people to get involved in these more systemic solutions um, is really the goal. And even pointing out to these corporations, if you know they they do read this book, like these are where we're working in, and the, these are movements gaining traction. Shareholder activism, like we are, you know, shareholders are introducing resolutions that are challenging the you know financial structure of companies, and you need to be ready for it because you can't avoid it. You know, there are different kinds of optimism, and I think they're all relevant. Actually, there's the optimism. When I tell my kids they're 17 and 20, I tell them, well, in order for you to existentially deal with this crisis and not repress it, you must see it as something where you can have an influence. That's kind of an existential strategy. You cannot bear it if you're not optimist at times. Then there's strategic optimism. Well, in order for us to gather enough people to make changes, then we must be optimistic. And then there's the, the, the factual optimism where you can say, well, actually, I do believe that. And I see the price of 
renewable energy is going down, or now see the energy mix is 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 changing. What kind of optimism is it that you're preaching in the book? That's a great question. I think I really think all three. Um, so the first section, you know, focuses on the psychological biases that make it difficult to be an optimist. So I think that was to your to your first kind of optimism. I, I think strategic, maybe I touch on in, in the second section where I'm like talking about these, these movements that have really only gained traction because people have been believing in them and working towards the actualization of them. Um, and then I really, there's one section in the second half of the book that like is kind of just facts about global progress that I think speaks to the third uh type of optimism, fact-based. Um, and it's really based on uh, the late Hans Rosling's book, Factfulness, um, which I love. Um, and so bringing that source of like reality, like there have been material improvements in a variety of, of metrics like indoor air pollution and, you know, the amount of CFCs in, in our ozone layer um, that have only come as a result of global collaboration. Um, and that can be done again. Um, even though we have few examples, um, we need to like remember them because when I talk to young people today, like most of them don't know that our ozone layer is the hole in the ozone layer is healing because of collaboration that happened 40 years ago. Um, or that it ever was a bipartisan issue in the United States. So I think remembering these actual facts too was really important for me to put in because my generation is too young to to even to know know about that stuff. Yeah, and I think that is a great point. This book, he's Swedish and we're in Denmark, we're very close. So his book was very big here, but I think the point you make that we must have the awareness that we're part of a history and not everything was won, but there were moral progress and there were victories that, that were won. And it's not just one long losing battle against uh, against against climate change. So I think that is a an, an important point. One thing that that struck me as well is that and that you say you believe in market driven uh, so, solutions, and we have a lot of climate activists here saying, well, it's all to blame on capitalism and and our consumption culture, the way we use things, the extractive uh, e economy. But you have some some optimism about the potential of these for market driven solutions. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, uh, Winner, I think as I have grown a bit older, I'm definitely more what I, what I would say pragmatic uh, in activism. I do believe extractive capitalism is to blame for um, a majority of the climate crisis. I do not think we're going to overhaul capitalism in the next 50 years um, before, you know, you know, the climate time bomb is, is ticking. Um, and because of that, I think what gives me the most optimism is solutions that operate within our existing systems, but actually to benefit the climate. So one of those examples within the market-based solutions chapter is um, ecosystem valuation. Um, and that's the idea of valuing a tree for how much carbon it sequesters and how much, you know, the psychological benefits of greenery rather than valuing a tree for what it's worth when it's cut down. And I think that's so powerful because it's bringing in that like, you know, market valuation that's so central to capitalism, but reversing 
the equation um, and actually putting the numbers behind, like we need carbon sequestration. We're investing billions of dollars in these huge direct air capture, um, you know, equipment, but we could also just be protecting and planting trees. Um, and there is like actual dollars and value behind that. Um, and that has, you know, I, I spoke to Ralph Chami from, he was from the IMF uh, for that section because he really pioneered this. And he was telling me too, like he comes from a very highbrow financial, you know, institutional background. And just the the fact that people in that space are, who have the money and the power, that's undeniable, are listening to this argument and actually believing in it, to me has so much potential because that's something we can do now. And, you know, flipping this, the switch on capitalism, that's going to take much longer than the time that we have. I, I definitely agree with you that within the time frame, and the time frame is the frame for for all action, we must look at where do we have capacity for action in society. And unfortunately, one of them is is is, is, uh, is finance driven, and we must utilize it to to the to the maximum. You also, it's very interesting reading it as a Dane because we put a lot of confidence in the political system. And you mentioned streets, courts, and uh, and 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 markets as at the three. Uh, at three venues. How do you see the political system? Yeah, they're happy for you guys, but we, we don't have the same confidence in uh, the political system, though I think most of the areas in each section have some tie-in to politics. Um, so one of the areas in, in the streets was bipartisan uh, coalition building. And so that was really inspired by... Um, a conversation I had with a friend who is the founder of American Conservation Coalition, which is really the only youth conservative climate movement in America. And they have been doing really important work, I believe, in getting conservatives in this country to acknowledge climate change um, and kind of get over the, uh, the solutions aversion that many conservatives have towards it. Um, politicization is, and is at, you know, a, a high everywhere, but in America to the point where a few years ago, our president, uh, would not acknowledge climate change reality. And now, um, because of work like those organizations, the conservative climate caucus is one of the biggest caucuses in our Congress. Um, and they have recognized as a, as a body that climate change is caused by humans and mass industrialization. And so I think that's, you know, that is a big leap. Um, and they have put forth policies that honestly are, are leading in parts of the country on, on energy and switching to renewables. Um, so I think that uh, my hope in politics doesn't come necessarily from politicians, but comes from uh, coalitions and activism groups that influence these politicians that elect the members of these groups as to be politicians themselves and who are actually willing to come to the table um, with people who vote and believe different things. Um, and that's kind of to your point earlier about a lot of youth activists really being resistant to capital-based solutions is, and something I've learned upon maturing really is that you, if we want to make a change, you don't have a choice you can't just not come to the table with the opposition party. Um, you can't just demonize them because then 
they, they're not going to want to work with you. Um, and I think that's a big flaw of youth movements, honestly, is, is our lack of willingness to work on bipartisan solutions. Um, but at the same time, that's an area of hope because there's so much progress to be made if we were to just start building these bridges. Yeah, we had Marshall Gantz on the show recently and, and who spoke about this. In order to mobilize, you must polarize. Mm. But in order to compromise, you must depolarize. And the movement should be able to do both things oh. at, the, at the same time. I like that. Yeah, beautiful. <clears throat> How do you see the, the climate movement in, in, American, uh, in, in, in America? Are you here in Europe? I think we see some divisions between those that we don't believe in in democratic movements anymore, appealing to politicians, appealing to appealing to 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 co corporate solutions. We we must radicalize. We we must find more radical forms of civil disobedience. We must see. We must blow up a pipeline. And mm -hmm. there's this very big split here uh, at the moment. And I think they both have a strong moral case. How do you see this this situation in America? Yeah, I think I'm. I'm beginning to see that strong moral split as well. Um, but the reality is like, if you are going, if you are engaging in more of the violent forms of, of disobedience um, and activism and protest, which you're, we live in a state where, in a, in a country where you're going to be persecuted. And then if you can't even do that work anymore because you're in jail or worse, then it's we're just losing momentum of, of the movement, honestly, I think. And I, I just don't believe that anarchy is plausible in any. I just don't think I think that there's a lot more people that will get hurt if, you know, we were to overthrow everything. Um, but I do understand there. Like you said, there's valid points on both sides. But I think as I've gotten older, I used to be way more, you know, willing, you know, enthusiastic to rise up against you know everything and and uh now i i just believe in coming to the table i think a lot of that has been informed honestly by the fact that my dad used to work for bp and he's also like the best person i've ever met in the world um and so i think just like that personal understanding that like good people can engage in not so good things um but we all have something to care and care about that involves the planet and like, if we start from there, that's so much more powerful than starting from a point, a position of an antagonism. Yeah, and I think what Elizabeth Wathuti, she said in Glasgow that you uh, please open your hearts. I think that is still the strongest appeal when she said to all the leaders who had very different political positions, if you open your hearts and listen with your heart, you understand that you cannot bear it. For me, that is the, the strongest strategy. Yeah. You have a very strong global community in the book. There's this sense that you there are people working different places at the same time, and it's and people working on very very difficult conditions combating uh, climate change. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, this this global perspective in the book and and how and how you brought these people together? Yeah, sure. So I I definitely you know I, my intention was to go visit um, you know at least one community in in each continent that was doing something unique in terms of um pioneering a climate solution and also tying in another big conflict um 
whether it be like geopolitical tensions or gender-based violence and, and how that intersects with climate solutions. Um, wasn't able to travel because of COVID and whatnot, but I still wanted to bring that lens because um, the majority of the book is quite Western-centric because that's just where my research has been. Um, but, you know, re-emphasizing that communities in the global South are facing the the most dire consequences of it right now and will continue to, even though they have contributed the least to it and really amplifying communities that might not have a huge, you know, public platform. Um, and so I basically connected with like activists I had already known across the world and asked them about where they're from and, and what initiatives uh, that are community led that they want to highlight. Um, and then did some interviewing and just found kind of some really interesting ways that again, people are tackling climate change on a community-based level while also tackling like massive issues. So I think like one of the most interesting ones was um, my interview with um, Hamdi Hato from Palestine. Um, and he was talking about like tackling food sovereignty and gender roles and climate change uh, through green roofs in the Al-Amari refugee camp. Yeah, that is incredible. Uh, one one last question. You must tell us a little bit about uh, your company as well, In The Loop, what you're doing, because that's a very concrete thing. You do that, that as I understand, it helps a lot of people get clothes that is sustainable and, and, uh, and not too expensive. Yeah, so that actually, and I think that goes back to the market-based solutions. I realized, you know, a couple of years ago that you can move a lot faster uh, in the private sector. Um, and... I realized that secondhand consumption is not as easy for people as it should be. So um, I built uh, with their, our team in the loop, which is a software that automates the process of buying and selling secondhand apparel online. Um, and so our main goal is to make secondhand as easy as retail so that people will stop buying new and, and switch to buying used um, as frequently as possible. And how is it working? So um, basically, it's a software that makes the selling process easier and therefore making the buying process more consistent. So you just take a picture of a garment and we have machine learning models that predict all of the key attributes about the garment um, and make a listing that is more similar to a retail listing in its consistency and the way it looks. Um, and so people who are interested in buying secondhand or just buying something in general will see this listing and say oh this looks quite similar to retail it's good quality it improves the trust of the process um and and that's currently what it what it is well thank you for what you do it's uh, it's it, it inspires optimism here to know that to know what you're doing in in houston and how you're dealing with it how you inspire people around you thank you sarah it was such an such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. You're an amazing journalist. Ask the best questions and, and you have such infectious joy. So thank you for, for reaching out. Thank you. Bye, Hunter. Bye. Det var min samtale med Sahra Birbani. Hendes bog hedder Climate Optimism, Climate Wins and Creating Systemic Change Around the World. Den kan bestilles hjem til der, hvor du ellers køber dine bøger. I næste uge 
Der skal vi tale med en mand, der er idemanden bag en transformation af hele den amerikanske kapitalisme. Det er journalisten, forfatteren og lederen af Open Market Institute i Washington D.C., Barry C. Lynn, der fortæller om, hvordan hans studerende blev en del af Bidens administration og nu er i gang med at lave en strukturforandring af den amerikanske kapitalisme. Den her udsendelse var som de seneste udsendelser produceret af vores gode hjælper og kammerat Mass Adam Wiener. Tak til Mass. Tak til jer for at lytte med. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen i næste uge. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg.